Under the Hood with Jonathan Hood. Weeknights on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN app. What's up and welcome in. This is Under the Hood with Jonathan Hood, live from Chicago on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN app. Open phone lines for you, 312-332-ESPN, 332-3776 is the telephone number. Hit me up on Snapchat, SnapJHood, also on Instagram, IGJHood as I broadcast live from our first Midwest Bank studio. We will talk about the White Sox with Jim Margulis from Sox Machine. We'll get his thoughts about the Chicago White Sox, a 6-1 homestand. The Chicago White Sox. How about that? Yes, we will hear from Jim coming up in about seven minutes right here on ESPN 1000. Also, we'll take a look at the NBA draft. You know the NBA draft is right around the corner. What are the Bears, sorry, what are the Bulls going to do with that number seven pick for the Chicago Bulls in the NBA draft? We'll hear from Deion Thomas, an all-time great basketball player for the state of Illinois in high school and college and now doing color analysis for the Illini Sports Network for basketball as well as the Big Ten Network. We'll hear from Dion coming up at 9.35 here on ESPN 1000. Plenty of time for your thoughts as well. 312-332-ESPN. Good to be back in the chair and talking to you here on this Monday night. The Cubs defeat the Los Angeles Angels over at Wrigley Field. Sold out. A great uh, homecoming for the Cubs after being on the road. Come home to a full house. The energy was in the building at Wrigley Field. 8-1, the Cubs beat the Angels in a big way. If you ever have any problems with your team, you need to be able to have two things. Offense and terrific starting pitching. The Cubs got both, right? So... John Lester, seven innings pitched, four hits, one run, one walk, and six strikeouts. He's four and four on the season, pitched very well. The offense came through as well for the Cubs with Baez and Contreras, both with home runs for the Cubs today. But coming into this game, there's a lot of question marks about what Cubs baseball is, what Cubs baseball has been for those first couple of months of the season. And the Cubs... In the month of April, 14 and 10. In the month of May, 16 and 12. Look at the numbers in the month of April. Their batting average is 246. In May, it's 254. Now here we are in June. The on-base percentage, 338 for the Cubs in April. 341 in the month of May. We'll see what happens in the month of June. But we saw the Cubs lose 2 out of 3 against the Reds and lose 2 out of 3 against Houston. Losing to the Cardinals again, swept there. Losing eight of their last ten coming into this game this afternoon against the Angels. And as I've been saying, it's going to be an up-and-down season. And it really shouldn't be for a team that's stacked offensively. This is not one of those things where I'm from Chicago, so I'm just going to talk up the Cubs because I'm in Chicago. Look at me, I'm from Chicago, and I've got a, I'm from the city, so I'm going to talk up the Cubs. That's not what it's about. This is real. When you see this lineup every day, from Schwarber to Bryant to Rizzo to Baez to Hayward to Russell and so many others in, on this roster offensively, 
you would think that this Cubs team would be better than 32 and 26, but that's not the case. They've had their ups and downs this year, and this is exactly what it's going to be. I expect the Cubs to be in the playoffs. I also expect them to get out of this this issue of the inability to hit. Um, I mean, one hit in his past, what, 33 at-bats with runs of scoring position? I mean, when you think about it, that's a ton coming into the game, coming into this game. It's one hit with runs of scoring position and 37 at-bats. That's, that's a really long streak coming into this game against the Angels. The Cubs will compete, and I think that they're going to vie for the division, which is not going to be easy. The Cubs have enough offense, but they've got to be able to find production that we saw a couple of years ago. There's so much focus on what the Cubs need to do as far as Kimbrell or trying to find someone to close the games. They need to find someone that's dependable offensively on a regular basis. So much focus on Joe Madden at the end of this season. What is, where is Joe going to be? Is he going to be with the Cubs? Will this team be a playoff team? I just think that because the window is open for this Cubs team to win through 2021, you know, there should be another World Series championship out of this. But it, d- it doesn't happen by just throwing a lineup up there. Those guys have to produce. They fired a hitting coach. They have all these excuses, talking about day baseball, talking about, you know, just kind of taking the third game of a three-game series for granted and all these other things that were laid out before the season. And they just got to hit. Simple as that. They just have to be able to produce. This lineup, if you gave a manager this lineup, you think you can win with this lineup. But it's on them to be able to get it done. And John Lester, by the way, the elixir, turning things around. He did good starting pitching against an Angels team. Uh, that's exactly what you got today. And the Cubs end up winning the ball game 8-1. to one. The White Sox on the other side of the track, 6-1 and one homestand. Think about what they were just a year ago. 19-39 a year ago, 20 games under five hundred. You and I both know what White Sox baseball is. Because at this point in time, they're 29 and 30 in the wild card hunt. I see what's happening with this Cub, this White Sox team, second in the division, and things are working out well. And it's surprising that Cleveland is underachieved so badly and Minnesota's been so hot. But here's the thing that has kept the White Sox above in a position where they can succeed, keeping their heads above water. And that's Lucas Giolito. Lucas Giolito is the Pitcher of the month in the month of May, which is amazing. When you think about what Giolito was, most walks in the American League last year, and now the pitcher of the month of May, the Sox have won his last seven starts, a 2-0 mark with a 1.76 ERA. You see his, one point, uh, his uh, 154 opponents batting average against, a .59 whip, pretty strong. Giolito is just an, an incredible unsung hero for this White Sox team here through the first couple of months of the season because he looks nothing like the Giolito that we saw last year. He's figured it out. Hats off to Don Cooper. Hats off to Giolito for getting it. Um, Some thoughts from Giolito because, I mean, for a guy that you didn't even know if he was a 4A player, if he belonged in the big leagues the way that he continued to walk small villages, you had no idea whether or not he was going to be a guy that could be dependent on, but now you're talking about ace-like stuff 
in the month of May for Giolito. Yeah, I'm just trying to let it rip in the zone, especially early. Um, I got the the big speed differential in my changeup, so I feel like sometimes guys will have to guess or, or, or have to have a certain approach to where I'm just going to let it rip uh, with my heater. Um, like I said, not try to be too fine, just throw it right to the glove. So thoughts there from Giolito. Also, James McCann saying that, hey, you feel some cockiness as a catcher for this team, James McCann can, talking about Giolito, getting cocky on the mound. Back to the, the question about, uh, you know, the guys that I've caught in the past. He's right up there with the confidence level of, of uh, those aces that, that I have seen, and um, that's how he feels of himself, you know, and that's you got to have that as a, as a pitcher, as a hitter, whatever you are. you got to have that um, that quiet arrogance about yourself. You, you never know from, from Giolito that, that, you know, he's as cocky as he, as he is because he's a good guy and he, he's not going to, throw it in your face but when he's on the mound he's cocky and he knows his stuff is good and he knows um hey it doesn't matter who's, who's in there I, I know my stuff is going to beat him so thoughts there from james mccann white Sox catcher as you're listening to under the hood with jonathan hood on espn 1000 the espn app today is the major league baseball draft uh, day one of the major league baseball draft the white Sox have their pick in and it's andrew vaughn with the third selection of the 2019 mlb draft the chicago white Sox select andrew vaughn a first baseman from university of california at berkeley Here's a scouting report on Vaughn from Eric Burns from the Major League Baseball Network. Hey, guys, let me tell you something. I've been calling college baseball games since 2010, and I can say with great conviction that Andrew Vaughn is the best hitter that I've ever seen in that time. So what we have to do is go back and historically think about who are the greatest hitters ever played in college. We're talking Robin Ventura, Pete Incavilia. I think about Pat Burrell, maybe a Mark Kotze. This dude just has it and there's something about his swing path that is gorgeous i saw him as a freshman and he hit a foul ball i turned to my broadcast partner jb long i said jb wow there's something about that swing he goes what are you talking about the next pitch he drills down the right field line next day first two homers of his college career and then it was over after that andrew vaughn has a special sort of swing that you can't teach. It's his incredible natural ability, and he could hit in the big leagues right now. All right, Andrew Vaughn. Those are big words, by the by the way, from Eric Burns from Major League Baseball Network about Andrew Vaughn for the White Sox, the third pick. Now let's go to the Cubs pick. They picked number 27 overall. With the 27th selection of the 2019 MLB draft, the Chicago Cubs select Ryan Jensen, a right-handed pitcher from Fresno State University. Here's a report on Ryan Jensen from Fresno State. The best fastball in the draft that people aren't talking about. Huh. And he, he was really lights out late in the year. I got a text from a scout who was saying that he thought it was the best fastball he'd seen all year. It's upper 90s. He maintains his velocity. He was throwing 97-98 in the, in the seventh uh, inning. What, what he is from there uh, really kind of depends. Uh, he may be a reliever profile. He's not the biggest guy in the world, but he can spin a, a pretty good breaking ball. I, I think you send him out as a starter, but you could shorten him up and get him to the big leagues pretty quickly. So thoughts there about both the Cubs and White Sox picks right there. Ryan Jensen, number 27 picked for the Cubs, and the number three pick is Andrew Vaughn for the White Sox. As you're listening to Under the Hood with Jonathan Hood, on ESPN 1000, the ESPN app, let's go to Sox Machine. Jim Margulis covers the White Sox for Sox Machine, and he joins me, Jonathan Hood, on ESPN 1000. Jim, as always, I appreciate your time. Thanks for coming on the show. Oh, thanks for asking. Well, there you go. Andrew Vaughn. Those are some big words from Eric Burns about uh, Andrew Vaughn. Uh, how good is this kid based on everything that you've read and seen? 
Well, he won the Golden Spikes Award last year, and he's a finalist this year. And his numbers uh, took a bit of a hit. He wasn't as impressive, but he lost a lot of protection at Cal. They lost a, a lot of guys in their lineup, and so he was basically the guy, and they pitched around him a lot, and he, even though pitching around him. You know, he still produced. He had an uh, OBP over 500. He had uh, slugged over 700. So the performances there, uh, you know, reading all the reports and, and, and watching the video, there's nobody that has any complaints about his game when it comes to, uh, you know, his power, his ability to recognize balls from strikes, um, you know, uh, ability to pull the ball or hit the ball with authority the opposite way. Everybody likes everything about that. I think the only reservation anybody has is that he's a six-foot first baseman who's a, a, a righty-righty, you know, righty, hitting righty-throwing. And that's a really rare profile to see picked in, in the top ten, much less the top three. Yeah, so undersized right-handed first baseman, as you mentioned, and someone that was not a, a, a big prospect coming out of high school. But, but as you mentioned, it was his college resume that really resonated, I guess, for the White Sox. Yeah, and, and you know, they... They've tried a couple times over the past few years to find these advanced college hitters who can perform right away. And I think really, you know, when it comes to picking Andrew Vaughn, that's the only reservation I have about it is that the White Sox have tried a few times. Uh, you know, Zach Collins uh, was supposed to be basically ready to hit right away, and he struggled against A-ball. And really this year at Charlotte is his first truly encouraging season he's had in the, in the minors. Jake Berger, you know, he had a uh, unimpressive showing at A-ball his first half season, then he hasn't played because he ruptured his Achilles twice. But those are two guys who are going to have to fight to stay away from first base. Yeah, Berger was a third baseman, but a big-bodied guy. Uh, Collins was a catcher who, you know, most scouts questioned his ability to catch. So those two guys, I guess, were trying to fight the gravitational force towards first base. Uh, Vaughn is a first baseman. There's really nowhere else he can go. Mm-hmm. And so when it comes to him, you know, it, I think it's best to try to set aside, you know, the previous failures or struggles by White Sox first-round picks and just focus on the talent on hand. And that's what I'm trying to do and getting excited about Vaughn just because, you know, looking at the reports, looking at everything, like there's no reason for the White Sox not to draft him aside from maybe the logjam. But, you know, if Collins doesn't work and Berger's never healthy and such, then, you know, they're, they don't have any first baseman behind Jose Abreu. Eric Burns says that he's ready to go now. And, of course, you and I know some of the great college um, uh, baseball players over the years, Robin Ventura and Peter Incovilia. I, I, I mean, based on the numbers, is he on that level? Is, do you believe he's ready to go in, in three years or less for the White Sox? I would maybe take that hype down a little bit just because MLB Network, you know, broadcasting its own draft, I think they're maybe erring on the side of uh, over-exuberance when it comes to, you know, these pick-by-pick analyses. But I think, you know, he should be able to be fast-tracked. I think if he isn't, you know, I imagine he'll start at, like, you know, Winston-Salem and and move his way up, you know, I guess if he proves he's, you know, hitting what you know near 400 at Winston-Salem, he could be up in a month to Birmingham and then, you know, who knows from there. But he should be fast-tracked, and if he has the problems that Collins has or that uh, you know, Jake Berger had, although well, Jake Berger had different problems, but Nick Madrigal even, like he's been off to a slow start. He's only getting rolling now. I, I think it would be mildly disappointing if, like, say, uh, next season, like when it comes to May or June, if he's still in A-ball or struggling in double-A, then I would be a little bit surprised. Jim Margulis from Sox Machine with Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN app. Let's talk about the big ball club. The Chicago White Sox. How about that? How about the White Sox, Jim? I never thought I'd be talking to you here in June, and, and the Sox are in the wild card hunt uh, in, in early June, twenty nine and thirty, twenty games below five hundred. This time last year when we spoke, what stands out most mm-hmm. about the Sox here through the first couple of months for you? 
Well, I think Lucas Giolito stole the show, stole the show in May. Um, you know, the, when you look at the offense, Tim Anderson and Yohan Kata had big Aprils. They both regressed in May and weren't that impressive. Nobody really stood out offensively aside from James McCann. Jose Abreu had 10 homers, but he even wasn't his usual self. So it's really come down to the pitching. And I think it's, you know, two guys. One is Lucas Giolito winning every single one of his starts. It's really, uh, yeah, I thought there was going to be some improvement in store. I always mentally linked him to Gavin Floyd as like a big righty who needed some time to put it all together and refine his mechanics. And he's right now exceeding you know, those expectations a lot faster than I thought. Mm-hmm. And then on the, the back end, Alex Colome, the White Sox have not blown a lead in the ninth inning yet this year. They've only blown one lead after the sixth inning. That's what's most remarkable is that, like, you know, they, uh, even with the bullpen struggles, like Kelvin Herrera not looking great, they, you know, uh, Jace Fry wasn't what he was last year. They've had some guys who have underperformed. But at the same time, you know, you, you give them Aaron Bummer, who's better, and Evan Marshall has come out of nowhere, and Alex Colome just being, being nails in every save situation. And they're not wasting any lead they have. So I think, you know, that's uh, when, you, when you look at those two performances, I think that's what stands out and allows them to be one game under 500 despite being outscored by quite a bit. Is James McCann is that is that um, is it margarine or is it parquet what, with, with McCann? Is this is this the real deal or are we look? Is this a mirage with James McCann? I don't know. I, I think <laughs> that's was, not good uh, enough. No, you can't give me. Yeah, you don't know. <laughs> I'm 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 gonna piece it together here. All right. uh, give me some time. Right. I gotta I gotta approach it. No, it's uh with, no with McCann. Like you know, part of it I think is legitimate improvement. I think last year he had some uh, you know off the field issues. Uh, with his children that I, I think uh, uh, might have affected him, and, and, and you can't really say it cost him whatever off his average or, or something like that. You just think, like, oh, that if he had some struggles, that might have been a part of it. Uh, also, he's finding basically every hole in the infield, uh, every hole in the outfield. He's uh, spraying the ball around. He's hard to shift against, so I think he's creating his own luck to a certain degree. I think he's also been you know, quite lucky in other regards, but I think there's a better hitter here than what he showed in Detroit. Uh, the 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 pitching, I think, is, you know, his framing is a little bit below average, but some years it's been a disaster, so he's receiving okay. Um, but I think when it comes to his work with the pitchers, and, you know, that's something well, I think you kind of have to take the word for it of, like, Don Cooper and, and the pitchers. When they say, like, like, working with McCann, you know, not being in the meetings and not, you know, only watching to see – uh, what they shake off and, and kind of judging off results. It seems like McCann does a great job of uh, calling games and, and knowing what's working for a pitcher on a given day. So I think, you know, offense might take a step back over the next couple months, but there's, I think, an adequate catcher here, which I think is, you know, sounds like faint praise, but it's not considering what they've run out there the past few seasons. Um, what, do you, what do you think, Jim, is the best spot in the lineup for Tim Anderson to flourish? We see him at seven. We see him at two. We've seen him uh, even lower than that in the lineup. What do you think is best for him? I think you know ultimately, I'd like him maybe like sixth, uh, right behind uh, the the heart of the order. When you still have guys on base and his contact, his ability to put the you know put the ball in play and occasionally hit for power will uh, you know benefit the lineup more than you know putting him in front of guys and hoping he gets on base. And you know sometimes he gets in these month long ruts where. You know, he maybe hits 240, but because he doesn't draw any walks, he only gets on base at a 280 clip, and that's really hard to generate scoring opportunities with the heart of the order. So I think as the lineup evens out, and I think uh, you know, Larry Garcia is doing an admirable job of, of filling the leadoff spot with his skill sets, you know, I'm fine with Moncada hitting second, then Abreu, and then like, you know, maybe even in this lineup, you know, having him hit fifth, uh, either behind Eloy or in front of him. 
uh, you know, having him in the heart of it so he's not completely, you know, out of the mix when the best hitters are up. But I'd rather see him, I guess, following up hitters rather than trying to set the table. So what are your expectations here now? Because after defeating the Indians and sweeping out Kansas City, here we go with at Washington and Kansas City on the road here through this week. What are your expectations for the Sox in these couple of series? Well, I, the good news is that they have a lot of off days. So, you know, that was the one killer thing about this last month, and I think it kind of went uh, maybe underappreciated or at least should be acknowledged is that they played 31 games in 31 days, and they went 16-15, and 15, and they managed to keep their bullpen pretty fresh, and, uh, you know, they didn't have to really over-manage you know manage the pitching staff and have to send guys down and bring guys up. They they came out relatively unscathed. So I, so I think, you know, when you get to this stretch where you have tougher opponents, but you have more off days, they should have their best relievers available more often, and uh, it should be relatively straightforward. Um, I'm still skeptical. I still think that you know when they play better teams or teams with better offenses like the Nationals and the Cubs and, and the Yankees, that uh, you know they're going to get their clock cleaned occasionally, like the Red Sox whooped them pretty good. The Twins kind of dragged the warning track with them. And I, I think that's going to be an issue. They're going to be beaten by the better teams, but I think they can beat the the bad teams. And so it kind of puts them in this middle class. And with the American League, the middle class is pretty small. Mm-hmm. And so I think, you know, if you can beat the bad teams, uh, you can you can hang around the wild card for a little bit and, and try to, uh, you know, keep things interesting. And then maybe, you know, if they keep it together long enough, they, you can even talk about adding a little bit at the, at the trade deadline isn't or it, even well before. Isn't it cool that we're not, the White Sox are not classified as one of the bad teams? Yeah, no, it's nice. <laughs> and, uh, uh, it, it's, uh, yeah, I, I guess I was going to be a little bit uh, pessimistic just after they really didn't have much to show for their offseason. You know, Yonder Alonso and John Jay haven't done anything. Mm-hmm. You know, really, McCann and Colome are the only thing to show for their offseason. But uh, the fact that they're basically a game under 500 with all of their internal talent uh, doing the job, I think that's what you want to see. Jim, if I go to Sox Machine, what would I find? Right now, it's basically uh, all draft all the time. We uh, just wrote up Andrew Vaughn's profile. We'll have uh, draft trackers, uh, day two recaps, uh, trying to put it all together in their farm system, figure out uh, where these guys fit and what their ascensions look like. And then uh, probably within the week, we'll turn our attention back to the Major League product. As always, I appreciate it. Thanks so much for coming on, Jim. Oh, always a pleasure. It is Jim Margulis from Sox Machine with me, Jonathan Hood, on ESPN 1000, the ESPN app. The story was mentioned on SportsCenter at the top of the hour regarding Clay Thompson. I wonder how the line moves now with this, by the way. A lot of injuries, a lot of mash unit stuff going on with this uh, Golden State Warriors team. So the MRI on Golden State Warriors all-star Clay Thompson confirmed a hamstring strain, and he will likely be questionable for Game 3. He's not going to play. Uh, Thompson will test his body over the next two days with hope to play Wednesday night, as according to Sham Sharania uh, from Stadium. I, um, you know, I don't expect for Clay Thompson to play Wednesday. And I'm not going to give you the, well, you know, the Warriors don't need them. No, the Warriors need players now. Let's not. I, I will tell you until the Kyles come home how the role players play well and how I love how they play as a team. Next man up mentality. Even Bogut gave them, again, a few minutes, but again, it was quality. If your third best center is Andrew Bogut, that's not bad. It's not bad at all because uh, that guy could start on some bad teams in the league. But I, I just, um, this Warriors outfit 
with Equidala not 100%. Let me make sure it's covered. They're all not 100%. But you can see the injuries from Iguodala. You see that Steph Curry is not moving around well. You see what's happening with Clay Thompson. And, and the the I think that if the Warriors are down 0-2, maybe we'd see Durant even quicker. Even though he looked like he was hobbling uh, in the uh, locker room at Scotia Bank Arena yesterday because he kept popping in and out of the, the locker room. He just won't sit there on the bench like everybody else. He just got to go in and out of the locker room with his socks cap on. Uh, and I don't, I don't know why that is, but he just keeps popping in and out. But he's not 100% either. So it's a next man up mentality for sure. There, yes, the, the next game is going to be at Oracle. But if Clay Thompson can't play, if Kevin Durant can't play, Draymond Green is going to give his all. There's no doubt. The game plan will be be ready, and there's there's no doubt that they've won with a couple players down. Iguodala was able to hit the game winner, and he's hobbling out there too. I think that you can in favor of the Toronto Raptors in Game Three. I think you can, and it's not necessarily about a whole bunch of threes either, because it's not like Kawhi Leonard is is even though he's scoring a lot, it's not like he's shooting five or six threes. You know, that's what Van Vliet does. That's what some of the other good shooters on that team do. Um, I'm looking for a better game from Kyle Lowry. I thought that he uh, underachieved uh, greatly in the game. But Nick Nurse didn't think that they were poised enough anyway to win last night's game, game number two. I thought we were just a little bit impatient and not didn't hold enough composure um, just to either A, get to a strong shot, or B, move it to the next one. Uh, you know, I thought we hit an action and something would, would be there and they'd cover it up with some help defense well when when there's help there's got to be somebody else probably open on the other side of the floor and I thought we kind of shot a few too many into multiple defenders or two defenders around the basket where those probably should have been maybe swung to the other side um again I got I got to look at it a little bit but it just felt like we were a little quick when there was something else maybe maybe just a little bit better open you know there is no LeBron in this finals this Eastern Conference team is the Toronto Raptors, and it's the best Raptors team that I've seen. It's the best Raptors team that they've ever had. You can talk about T-Mac, you can talk about Vince Carter and all some of the other great players they've had on that team. It's the best they've had. And, and Kawhi Leonard's on the top of that. And the thing is, is that even though that they are a very good offensive team, they were thwarted because of the strong defense by the Warriors. Here's Steve Kerr. I said yesterday and today that 109 points... Uh, is plenty to win the game, which is what we had in game one, but we gave up 118. So it was all about our defense, and uh, we held them to 37% and, uh, you know, forced 15 turnovers and guarded the three-point line well. So it was uh, championship defense, and that's what it's going to take. Speaking of basketball, what are the Bulls going to do at seven with that draft pick? We got to talk to Howard. They got to talk to uh, Deion Thomas. Not only about uh, the Bulls, but also I want to ask him about Howard Griffith. Howard's on my mind. The story in the Tribune about Howard Griffith, how uh, uh, about Howard Moore, how Howard lost um, his uh, wife and uh, daughter in a crash a couple of weeks ago. I think it was on a Saturday. And uh, I want to talk to Dion about that, too. But I want to ask him about the Bulls. But I know he's got the latest on how Howard's doing and what Howard Moore is going through. The longtime coach of the UIC Flames now. Uh, and assisting with the uh, Wisconsin Badgers. So Howard's on my mind. I want to ask Dion about that as well. And that's coming up next as you're listening to Under the Hood. From your hood to J-Hood. I excel, then prevail. The mic is contacted, I 
attract clientele on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN app. Under the Hood with Jonathan Hood. Weeknights on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN app. Under the Hood with Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN app. Glad that you're with me here. Hit me up on Instagram, IGJHood, or on Snapchat, SnapJHood. We turn to a great high school and college basketball player from Simeon, from the Fani Illini, and now an analyst for the Illini Sports Network doing color for Illinois basketball, also from the Big Ten Network. It is the great Dion Thomas, and he joins me, Jonathan Hood, here on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN app. As always, we appreciate you coming on. Hey, Jonathan. Thanks for having me, man. It's a pleasure. Absolutely. The Bulls will be picking at number seven in the draft, as you well know. I, you know, I want to get your, your keen insight on some of these young players that may be picked high in the draft. I'll give you an example of one guy I'm keeping my eyes on. The 6'5 combo guard from North Carolina, Kobe White. When you, when you saw him, what, did you, what stood out most about Kobe White? Well, it, it's really, his, for me, after watching North Carolina play uh, a lot this year, is how he, his willingness to take over the game. I mean, the kids showed no fear. I mean, and then you take that with his size at six five because he's definitely a legit point guard. But he has a he's a legit point guard that can put the ball in the in the basket. I think what he does will transfer immediately to the NBA because of his ability to shoot the ball and his ability to put the ball on the floor. But he's also shown that inner toughness that I think you need as a rookie to be able to come in and be successful. Yeah, uh, another player that was on a big stage in the NCAA tournament was Jared Culver from Texas Tech, a sophomore. Um, I, I've seen a lot of comparisons with him. Jared Culver, I, I think that he's going to make himself a nice living in the NBA, especially being able to carry Texas Tech to that level. Oh, no doubt. No doubt. And, and I'll tell you, it's so funny you say that. We were, my wife and I were watching, and Reggie Miller, and, and no knock on Reggie Miller, but, you know, Reggie made the comment, oh, my God, and nobody has ever heard of this Jared Culver kid. I'm like, see, this is the, this is why you have NCAA guys or college analysts talk about this because I'm like, Reggie, this kid's about to be a lottery pick. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> you know, because it's like you said, I mean, he has a very quiet way about him, but he has that ability to do basically everything on the floor. Uh, but yet he has not reached his, his potential yet. I mean, he, he, he will improve his jump shot. He will improve his ball handling. He's coming in at about six 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 seven, about 200 pounds. So he is already physically ready for the game. And he showed some maturity, like you said, when Texas Tech was down. He, he stood up and he put himself above the other guys on the floor while trying to play help and play with his teammates. So he, he was able to step up on the stage. He was able to come out and show what he could do. And that's what you're looking for when you have a player that's going to be drafted as high as he is. The great Deion Thomas with me, Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN app. I saw this comparison. You may laugh, but I saw this comparison because I've been, I have all this draft information in front of me. Uh, so Jared Culver is compared for some to Nick Anderson. You, you know what? <laughs> that's, I'm not going to laugh at you. Because I can see that. I, I can see why people would make that comparison. Uh, I think Nick is a lot better athlete, though. Mm-hmm. But Jared Culver is not a bad athlete at, at, by no stretch of the means. But 
you can look at their body. You can look at the smoothness in the way they played the game. I mean, I think Nick maybe have been a little bit more polished at this time, but I can see that comparison. I wouldn't laugh at you. <laughs> I, I, I kind of like that idea. Yeah, I've been reading a lot of these uh, these different draft capsules, and that's it's an interesting parallel. Uh, another player, too, Coach, is, is Cam Reddish, the 6'8 forward from Duke. Uh, again, projected to be a top 10 pick, so maybe in the, in the top eight could be around for the Bulls. I, you know, I'll, I'll tell you, I didn't see enough of Cam Reddish to really have one strong opinion on what he is going to be. This is one of those things where you wish he was, would be a sophomore and have two years to, for me to have a complete look at what he could be. What, what are your thoughts on Cam Reddish of the next level? I, I agree with you 100%. I, I think Cam Reddish has an opportunity to be a top-notch player in the league, but I didn't see it. You know, he was playing on a team with Zion Williamson and, of course, with R.J. Barrett. And so he took a back seat uh, to those guys. And when he needed to play well, there were times he played well, but there were times when they needed him to play well and he wasn't there. I don't think from a mental standpoint or a uh, maturity standpoint, he's there right now. But the way things are working now in the NBA, like you said, he'll be a top 10 pick without really proving himself, in my opinion, to be that top 10 pick. But that's just the way things work nowadays. So, of course, he has to come out. But I would have loved to have been able to see him with another year under Coach K at Duke. But we're not going to get that. He's going to be in the NBA. I think he has a great chance, especially if he can come in and learn behind someone that, you know, has a little bit of time with us. And with him possibly going to Chicago, going to Atlanta, he may not have that opportunity. But if he was to end up falling to Washington or, or falling to uh, even in Miami or somewhere like that where he would have some older players on that team, I mean, he'd be great if he could go to L.A., but that's not going to happen. To be able to learn behind someone what it really takes to be in a league, I think he would be a lot better off. But I still think he has a tremendous upside. I just would have liked to have seen more maturity at the uh, collegiate level. All the numbers are there, Coach. I mean, a 7-1 wingspan, an 8-9 eight, eight, reach. I mean, And yep. watching him, there's no doubt. An explosive athlete, great first step. He's got all those things. It's just the, the idea that we, had, we would never see him without Zion being there. And that, because that would have been the true sign of is he a guy that can lead a ball club? Uh, you know, some of his intangibles, but you know, we're gonna see what he looks like on the next level. No, I agree. It'll be interesting to see because he that's and that's why I mentioned those two guys. I mean, you have you had R.J. Barrett, you had Kent, and you had Zion Williamson, and he naturally just you know because I think of the personality fell behind those guys, and and really a lot of the times were lost because Zion was. Such a, a, a you know a big uh, star superstar just when he would dunk and all of the things he just attracted so much attention and then of course R.J. Barrett was Mr. Consistency so he's putting up 20 25 points regardless who's on the floor but that's the toughness that I'm talking about it would have been easy for R.J. Barrett to say okay well you know what this is Zion Williamson's team he's like no this is my team too and that's the thing that I miss seeing with Cam Reddish that I hope he will be able to uh, develop um, after maybe maybe not his first year, but definitely develop as he goes through his NBA career. Deion Thomas with Jonathan Hood on Under the Hood on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN app. 
There's a story from a few days ago, Coach, about uh, John Morant underwent surgery to remove loose bodies from his right knee on Monday. Is that is could that be just be a nothing, or do you think that maybe that could affect his draft status because everything has him going at number two after Zion Williamson? Well, if he's just you know, it's just a little cleanup job. That's that's definitely nothing that's going to uh, bother him. And as you know, the NBA is going to be on that. Those scouts and those doctors will be able to really take a look at that. As we saw him playing during uh, his this year. You know, it didn't show. He showed no effects from his freshman year, no effects this year as his sophomore. I don't think that's anything that's going to bother him whatsoever on on uh, June twentieth. Uh, yeah, June twentieth when they come out for the draft. I got a, a little barbershop conversation with you. Okay, so you got to you come to the barbershop with me with this this conversation. Love it. Let's do it, baby. Okay, so Zion Williamson. If he stays with the Pelicans, and again, every, all signs are that he will be drafted uh, to the New Orleans Pelicans number one, what kind of one-two punch would it be if Zion is, agrees to stay with the Pelicans and if Anthony Davis agrees to stay with the Pelicans? Well, I, I guess it would I, – when I look at a team, you know, from my years of coaching of building a team, what you really need, in my opinion, your point guard has to be solid, your two or three guy has to be solid, and then your four or five. So you have to have those three positions, I believe, that are that are solid. Where do you play Zion Williamson? That's the question. Or is he a guy that's like a Charles Barkley that you just put out on the floor and he goes out and plays? Now, I think that's kind of where he'll fall in, but the the difficulty of those two playing together is, Neither one of them is a great jump shot shooter. So now you're going to have your defense is going to be – I mean, the, the other team will retract their defense and make you an offensive jump shot shooting team, and that's going to slow them down. I would love to see them play together uh, because I think with Anthony Davis' skill level and his ability to move the basketball and get it where it needs to go, and as we've seen Zion Williamson with Duke, this, <clears throat> excuse me, this kid has no problem – creating and making his teammates better around him. So I think they could play together. Now, will they will be another question, because I think Anthony Davis now at this point in his career wants to win championships or wants to have the possibility of winning championships, and he's not going to do that in New Orleans for a while. Uh, lastly, Coach, I, um, <laughs> I said this earlier on the show, and I still believe in it. It is funny, the perception of, of the Golden State Warriors. We already know that they're champions, but here's my, my take on it is it is interesting how people will just say, well, you know, the Golden State Warriors, all they do is just shoot threes because they got Steph Curry and Klay Thompson. If you really look inside the game of the Golden State Warriors, out of all the 16 playoff teams, I think they were eighth or ninth as far as three-point shooting percentage. It's not about threes. You saw an inter- interchangeable parts with bigs being involved with Cousins, um, and to be able to see what they were able to do, um, I thought that it showed a lot of resolve for them to have so many injuries and then next man up. That is the embodiment of next man up mentality for them to win game two against Toronto the other night. Well, I agree with you. And this Golden State team, and not this one in particular, but this era of Golden State has brought about a change in, in basketball. I mean, it's the whole idea of the positionless 
uh, style of basketball. Like you said, you have five interchangeable spots. Your foreman, who is Draymond Green, part of the time is bringing the ball up in transition. You had DeMarcus Cousins bringing the ball up in transition the other day. So they look like, and you know, some people might laugh at me, but they look like a better European-style basketball team. You know, and after me spending 14 years over there, I know what that looks like. You have five players that are extremely skilled that can put the ball on the floor and do other things and make each other better. You're right. It, it, it is. It does show a certain level of resolve. It shows the moxie. It shows that uh, intestinal fortitude, and it shows a whole lot of doggone grit mm-hmm. for them to suffer the injuries that they have with Kevin Durant and, of course, with Boogie Cousins that we talked about earlier. But those guys still come out and play the way they play. And there's, you know, and I have to put it out there: a large portion of this is because of the two Illinois boys. Yeah, you know. What they, what Andre Iguodala and, and Sean has been doing out there on the basketball court, man, is amazing. It's those extra pieces that those guys need. They've done a great job of putting their team together and building their team. That they take a lot of, you know, Steph and of course Clay and, and um, Kevin Durant. They get all of the accolades. But those other guys that are down there in the trenches doing all of that dirty work, making that extra pass really is why those guys are so successful. I'd be remiss if I didn't um, talk to you a little bit about uh, Coach Moore, Howard Moore, and the accident that he had a couple of weeks ago. Um, that, that really took me for a loop because my phone started blowing up on that Saturday. I said, oh, my God. Um, have you heard anything, any news as of late about Coach Moore? And can you speak to um, your initial reaction to the news? Well, it, it you know, I've known Howard for years, um, and of course, working with him at UIC, we got we became even closer. Our families were extremely close, so it. I mean, I was I was in shock. Um, my my family and I sat in our home and we we cried for a long time over that Jay Hood. Mm-hmm. Um, Jen was an amazing woman. And, and it quickly became one of my wife's best friends. Um, of course, anytime you lose a child and in that situation, I, I can't even imagine it happening to my two daughters I'm on. I can't even imagine having to sit and, and get that news or watch, um, apparently watch your baby um, pass away. Um, so there are no words. And the great thing is, you know, you know, coach like I do, he is an extremely spiritual person, mm-hmm. a very strong person, honest person. What you see is what you get. So he and Jarrell, his son, will will get by this, but it's a long road ahead, um, and he's going to have a ton of support, you know, from me and my family as well as a ton of other people. Um, that'll be there for him and, and for Jarrell and his family to help them through. And thank God, Coach is getting better. Um, every day he's getting stronger. He's going through rehab up in Michigan. I am waiting to hear back when he's going to be, and I shouldn't say released, but they're considering doing this, his rehab in uh, Madison, mm-hmm. and then he will go back to um, Ann Arbor if necessary. But we'll we'll see. That hasn't been decided yet. And of course, we're still waiting, you know, for this 
part to pass so they can do the services for the family. So coach is getting stronger, thank God. Um, like I said, his son is doing well, but it's, it's a long road uh, before we get any semblance of recovery. Coach, as always, we appreciate your time. And, uh, you know, again, a lot of prayers for, for Coach Moore. I loved um, being able to provide broadcasts and working with UIC, especially with you as part of that coaching staff. So, um, again, all the best to the family. And I'm glad you came on the program with us. Uh, Jay Hood, for you again, brother, anytime. And, and I appreciate you you asking about Coach, um, about Howard. So, and I'm sure he will. And, and when I – I'm going to go visit him pretty soon, but when I have an opportunity, I'll definitely let him know that you asked and, and you sent your blessings and prayers. Absolutely. Deion Thomas with us here on Under the Hood. You're listening to ESPN 1000. Jonathan Hood. And I got with it takes to rock mic right yeah. On ESPN 1000 and the ESPN app. We thank you for being part of the program here on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN app. Our thanks to you for listening. Our thanks to Jesse Rogers, Ray Flores, Jim Margulis, and Deion Thomas on the other side of the glass. Felix and Sean on the other side of the glass. All right, coming up. I'll be up back with you tomorrow, 7 to 10, right here on ESPN 1000, the ESPN app. We have Tuesday Wrestling Tuesday. If you're a wrestling fan, make sure you listen at 935 tomorrow night. For Felix and Sean, it's Jonathan. Don't forget the Under the Hood podcast. Download the Under the Hood podcast wherever you download your podcasts. Right here on ESPN 1000. Talk to you tomorrow at 7. Jonathan Hood. I'm so good. On ESPN 1000.